Live from New York City, it's The Gary Knoll Show. And now, your host, Gary Knoll. Hi, everyone. I'm Gary Knoll. This is Talkback, an hour devoted not to guests or commentaries or in-depth investigative reports, but rather to addressing the issues that you find are important in your life. Anything that will contribute to a dialogue that is empowering, enlightening, stimulating, you are welcome to call in, share your ideas. Our number is 888-874-4888. Again, 888-874-4888. And this is able to be handled, at least the uh, in the near future, we're going to be able to do it worldwide with Skype. So people all over the world will be able to email, or we'll have a website where you can uh, email in real time, uh, and that will be probably next week. But for now, we're waiting on your phone calls. When they come in, we'll take them and put, and put you up. And in the interim, we have Elizabeth McCormick, who has been taking your emails throughout the week, letters, emails, and then she brings them on the air so I can help address these issues. So call now. 888-874-4888 if you'd like to share insights, questions, thoughts on any issue that's important to you. Hi, Elizabeth. Hello, Gary again. Hello. Um, I'll get straight to it. We've got plenty of questions. Um, the first is from Howard in Virginia. He says, I have a very stressful job, but on the other hand, my job provides an excellent standard of living. I've made many rationalizations and justifications, like do I keep the job and try and be less stressed, keep the job and accept the stress, or do I give it up completely in order to have a less stressed life? I don't know what to do. Part of what happens when a person is conditioned, and it's about conditioning, is that you're conditioned to trust that the tools you've been given are the tools that you need to master what you're going to achieve. So let's say you go to school and you're told that, gee whiz, uh, now you can be an accountant or a lawyer, a physician, more often than not, because you've committed to that and because it's probably been a primary interest, you go into it. What happens then is we either evolve into the system that is a part of that career or we fight against it or we try to reform it or we try to keep the system, be a part of the system, be rewarded for being in there, but more quietly do what we want to do in our own unique way. I'll give you an example. I'm a registered dietitian. I went to dietetic school. I also am a clinical nutritionist. I'm board certified nationally and by the state of New York. I also have a PhD in human nutrition and public health science. Now, what that allowed me to do was to learn about the corporatized and the scientific pasteurized, homogenized notion of health. And part of my training was that you must have animal proteins every day, three times a day, in order to get the muscle mass that you needed, the strength you needed. Now, anyone who challenged that would be first warned, then threatened, and then punished. Punishment meaning you are criticized, you are you're thrown out of that profession. But how do you help people if you know that the very information you learned in school is the very likely cause of many of their diseases? 
For example, if we had a sick person in a hospital who had cancer, uh, there was nothing prohibiting us from giving them bacon and eggs and coffee and sugar and, and, and white bread. Uh, if you had arthritis, there was no information presented by the arthritis community, the rheumatologist that said there was an association between what you ate and drank and arthritis, either in its cause or its improvement or cure. So if an entire, an entire field, every single rheumatologist in America was told it doesn't matter what you eat, it doesn't matter what you drink, you're, it's, it's not going to impact your arthritis. It's genetic, your age, and it's a normal process in aging. What we can do, however, is we can give you a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory like Prozac, or excuse me, like uh, uh, Vioxx that will turn off the pain, a COX-2 inhibitor. Now, when 60 to 500,000 Americans died from using Vioxx in a four-year period, the manufacturer was never held accountable, didn't have to, withdraw the product from the market. They voluntarily withdrew it long after they'd made $22 billion. There was not a single lesson learned from that. In fact, there's never been a lesson learned from any drug that was marketed, shown to be dangerous, and then then withdrew it from the market. There was no taking away a corporate charter. So the people who knew with malice they were making a profit off something that didn't work or would kill people, that's never happened where those people have been punished. And that's because we've corporatized, with a profit incentive, all these corporations that make these products for us and all these services they offer. Education today is about who controls it, the administrators, the, uh, the people who have the private contractors, the book publishers, the people that do the tutoring. They're all profiting from education. Therefore, when profit is involved in any process, it will adulterate the purity and purpose of what originally was supposed to be something important. So now one day you wake up and you're a dietitian, like myself, and you realize that if you applied the information that everyone is rewarded for using, you're actually getting people sick. And I just refuse to do that. So I would not teach, nor would I treat in any institution, dietetic institution. I just went out on my own. And because of that, I've been able to heal more people, help more people than all the dietitians combined because they're all working from a flawed model. And when they see someone like myself, they have to think I'm an extremist or something's wrong with me because why am I talking about stuff that they didn't learn, is not in their textbook, is not in their corporate meetings, is not in their seminars, and they're not willing to step outside of the comfort of that reward. Like how many oncologists ever stopped at the end of the year saying, you know, it was a pretty good year. We made $800,000, $2 million. But none of my patients who had advanced cancer survived. They all died. So maybe I should question my protocols, the drugs I'm using, the approach I'm using. But they won't do that. Because to do that, they put themselves in the same position as the man who just wrote you the letter. I've built up a standard of living. I now have, uh, I don't have a Buick or Ford or Chevy. I have a BMW convertible. Cost $125,000. I don't live in a, an apartment. I have a townhouse. So I don't want to give this stuff up in order to be more ethical or to challenge the lack of honest science in oncology. 
So I've got to make a decision. If I'm stressed, what is the nature of my stress? It's because I know what I'm doing is not right? Or it's because I'm overcommitted to it? More often than not, that means, wow, if I made this much money from what I'm doing, if only I had another 10 hours in a day, how much more could I make? So what we don't know from this letter is what the person's motive really is. If they want less stress and they see their job is stressful, what part of the job is stressful? And in today, more often than not, it's more. Just think of more and you're going to come to one of the most important concepts and constructs in our lives. Most people have been conditioned to believe that whatever they have is not enough. The billionaires who have private yachts, private planes, multiple mansions, homes in many countries, it's still not enough. So they're chasing after something. They're chasing after the, the, the objects of happiness. They thought when they bought their trophy wife off Amazon or they got their latest $3 million car or $500 million yacht, they'd be happy. Then they found that there's still this big void, this emptiness. And yet instead of changing their mindset, they just want more. I live in a building in Manhattan that has a lot of people work on Wall Street. When I come back from my run in the morning, when I run early, I see them going to work very early. When I come back at night from visiting with friends or being at a movie or play, I see them frequently coming back, the very same person. Now, that's an 18-hour day. And I'll bet that they don't go in and spend any quality time for themselves. I'll bet they're, they get into bed, they will then open their laptop and they'll continue working. Why? Because they still don't believe that what they have is what they should have. So they're willing to burn themselves out. Now, initially, for the first year, two years, three years, four years, five years, they can put in those hours, have no personal real friends, have no quality time for balance in their life, but they have a nice apartment. They have a rental in the Hamptons in the summer. They have all these nice places they can go that previously they wouldn't. But once you go to these places, and here's a typical, typical Hollywood party, a typical East Hampton party. You spend all week talking with friends about what's going to be the place to be this weekend. You get invited to a party. You get to a party, and now you're looking over everyone's shoulders to see who's famous there, and now you're bored five minutes at the party, and you want to find out where's the next party. So everyone at every party is talking about the next party. Everyone's talking about being someplace else. You rarely see people look each other in the eye, and the only conversation I've ever heard at any of those parties is... What are you doing? How much are you making? What do you own? It's all about materializing your life as if that is your value. There's no intrinsic value outside of capital or what it can purchase. So until you know those factors, you really wouldn't know what to tell a person. But in my uh, general concept, I would say if you're working at something that has stressed you, and you cannot resolve that stress because there are conditions or circumstances that you cannot change, 
then you're harmonized in the wrong place. And stop thinking that there's a limitation. Stop thinking that that's the only job, the only place, the only people that you'll ever be able to connect with. Somehow we think that there's a limitation, a shortage of friends, money, people, places, and experiences. None of the above is true. So then I would make the change. Now, I just wouldn't leap head first. I would ask myself, where do I believe I could be and should be? Where would I love to be? And then travel around and see the best places. Can I get into the same occupation but in a different environment with different people with different circumstances where I'm not stressed? And with a mindset saying, I'm going to work at the next job for three months. If during those three months I do not find that there are five satisfying factors, I'm in the right place at the right time with the right work environment, with the right support team in that environment, then I'm in the wrong place. And continue on your journey. For you to be in an environment that you're not happy means that you've just wasted that entire time at that job. Because the angst, the anxiety that comes from being in a place that you're not happy with means you're never living in emotional balance. You're always going to be on that, I'm unhappy, I'm complaining, I'm whining, I'm blaming, I'm a victim of circumstances, instead of taking control of your life. That's the advice I would give. Mm. Yes, it's, it's great. Thank you Now, so before we come back to you, let's go to Lori from New York. Hi, Lori, your turn. You're on the air. Hi, Gary. Um, I have advanced uh, colon cancer, and um, I'm taking vitamin drips. And uh, they want to start putting in um, monoclonal antibodies because he says my immune system, um, um, the, the, the cancer markers are very active. And uh, I'm just concerned whether or not this will do anything later on or um, if it won't be beneficial to me. I just well, don't know. F first, what have they told you you need to do for your immune system? Well, I, um, I mean... My whole diet and all has, has changed. Um, I'm vegan, uh, uh, gluten-free, um, but he, he, he didn't really, I mean, I'm taking a lot of supplements, um, but they're, they're tracking the markers, and um, he says that it's pretty advanced, they're very active, and the tumors um, have almost doubled over, uh, you know, six months. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said that, um, you know, my immune system isn't strong enough to fight it and that these monoclonal antibodies, um, you know, would help that. Well, that's part of what people receive when they get the monoclonal antibodies. I believe that you should look at it, I would look at it from a little different perspective. Mm -hmm. I would say, first and foremost, sit by yourself quietly, no cell phones, no distractions, It'll take you a whole day. And begin to live your life in reverse. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that you look at every single part of your life, at least the major episodes, the remarkable situations that have occurred, some good, some bad. And then ask, how did I get into that situation? What was my motivation? What was my motive at all? Who participated? How long was I there? Why did I stay? And what was the outcome? What were the consequences, the cause and effect of me making those choices? And what can I learn about that? 
Now, because we know two people have the same amount of unique circumstances that they've had in their life, some have more, some have less, you have to look at each one that was significant. I'm only talking about looking at significant ones. And then ask yourself, have I been living on the positive side of choices or the negative side of choices? Because your DNA literally will react either turning gene healing on or off based upon the energy and the message in the energy that you bring into it. It's called the epigenetic factor. Now, what happens at the end of this process is that you're not looking for someone to blame. Rather, you're looking to understand the map that you use to get to where you're at. And there's this concept that I use in helping people, and that is most people will only know the value of their choices when they reach their destinations. Then they stop. Then they turn around. Then they look behind them and say, gee whiz, here I am. I've got cancer, I am broke, or I'm divorced, or I'm near death, or whatever it may be. And then you have to ask, could you have anticipated the likely outcome if you'd have made different choices? And that's why it's important to ask ourselves, why did I make those choices? Now, this isn't a perfect process, but at least allows you to have more control over understanding the processes that led you to your current state. Remember, you have, you, when you look in a mirror today, nothing that you are doing today is represented in that uh, image coming back at you. That's a lifetime looking back at you because it is an accumulation of a lifetime of positive and negative experiences that we end up being at today. First of all, do you understand what I'm saying up to this point? I do. I mean, what got me into the situation was a horrible diet, and I changed that around, lost 100 pounds, and I just, um, I don't feel right. I just, um, I mean, the, the diet and all, I've changed, and, and um, I just, I, I still don't feel well. Okay, okay, good. Let, let's start with that. Would you have made those diet changes if you did not get sick? Oh, absolutely not. Okay, then just making changes is not the same as changing the energy flow. The energy flow is more important than the change you make. If someone's only going to make a change because they're afraid of the consequences, their doctor says, if you don't cut out meat, you're going to die, then you may cut out meat. It doesn't mean you want to cut out meat. It doesn't right. mean that you would have. It means your energy, your choice, who you are is still connected to the disease process. Do you understand we have to separate yeah. out what we do from why we do it? It is the why that is important. So there's two ways of approaching this. One is we're forced to make change, in which case that rarely ever works, because we're not committed to it. It's as if you are, someone is behind you pushing you forward, and you've dug your heels into the ground, so the change that is occurring is not you're going forward on your own, it is someone forcing you into it. So there's a resistance. Where there's resistance, there's constriction of energy. Where there's constriction of energy, there is the in, almost inevitable outcome that you don't have the freedom to release, unharness the full energy healing potential of the body. So a different mindset is required here. It is the mindset, yeah. almost the Buddhist mindset. The, the Tao, one of 
coming back to the perfection of the spiritual um, of the spiritual self, coming back to the innocence and honesty that we're all born with, where no one is born with the intent of destroying themselves or their other people. No one is born a racist. No one's born a mugger. No one's born a killer. No one's born greedy. No one's born selfish. Well, then how do we get to where we've made these choices? That's your condition response. So every condition response takes you one degree away from your authentic self. So one day, you're 30, you're 40, you're 50, you're 60, and you look in the mirror and you're not happy. And you're not happy for a lot of reasons. Whether others know it or not, we're very good at disguising how we really feel because we also want to be seem to be functional and acceptable. So we're over here and we're suffering because we're not happy and we're reinforcing that negative feedback loop. And when we reinforce the negative feedback loop, all we can do is make more inappropriate choices. Just like the person I was mentioning before who goes to work each day on Wall Street and gives up their morning, gives up their friends, gives up their companions they're with, gives, gives up balance in their life, going to the opera, going to ballet, going to movies, going dancing, going to the park, going canoeing. They can't do that now because that competes with their insecurity. And insecurity is the dominant energy. Laurie, you can't have two energies working simultaneously. There's only going to be one dominant energy in every human being, and whatever your dominant energy is, that's what everything else has to submit to. So you can't be healing and diseasing. You can't be happy and sad. You can't be constructive and destructive. You have to be one or the other. And what, be, what we become is what we have been all throughout our life. It's just frequently more often not hidden. So one day you wake up and you realize, my God, how did I get to this level? And more often than not, it's because we honored the wrong choices, because we felt committed, guilt and shame and, and tradition, religion, cultural, uh, cultural uh, indoctrination. We end up being a person we were authentically not. We weren't allowed to be our authentic self. Something stopped us. Something changed that path in the road. So we worked hard. We mastered the path we were on. It just wasn't our authentic path. And so one day when we reach our destination and we're supposed to be okay and supposed to be happy, and we're not. And instead of saying, stop everything, drop every ball in my life, just drop everything and start over, we're not given the permission to start over. We're not given the uh, encouragement to start over. We're told, work harder at what you're doing. Just like the people on Wall Street, if they're not getting what they need in the 18-hour day, some will take cocaine, some will take uh, methamphetamines in order to work two days in a row to get ahead. And even when they've gotten ahead, they won't like the reward they've gotten. So everyone is rewarded in life for every choice they make. They just won't always like the rewards for the choice they made. I have a friend that was the dean at Fairleigh Dickinson University, and he was an extraordinarily jovial, uh, bright person. When he walked into a room, everybody knew his presence because he had a dominant dynamic energy. And he could convince you just about anything. He is extraordinarily charming. And if you talked about health, oh, you know, he could talk about health. 
and he would actually go to the health food store occasionally and buy some healthy things. But if you watched him eat, he would eat everything on his plate and everyone else's plate. He never stopped eating. He would exercise once in a while with stuff that was in his house, but it was rare. And yet he was extremely successful at what he did. He was very respected in his career. And the last uh, three times I spoke to him, a year ago this month, I suggested he do a health retreat. He loved the idea. He, yeah, he was going to bring his wife, he was going to come. Then it came time in January, and he didn't. Had an excuse. Then in April, and again, he didn't. Now, it's rare I do three in a year, but I did one in, a, in August to help our sister station, WBAI. It was just for them. And I pleaded with him. I said, please come and be a part of this. You need it. He said, okay, you're absolutely right. I've got to get away. got to give myself a break. Working too hard, too many hours. You know, uh, Doing very well, by the way. Making a lot of money. Making money. And that was okay. And then just uh, four weeks ago, sitting in his car, he had a stroke. The hospital he was taken to did not have hyperbaric. That could have saved him. And as a result, he died. And it was interesting because when his wife called me, and she said that she feels really bad because she was fully aware, since they did everything together, that he had been invited to these retreats, but they just didn't make that a priority. And now there's nothing they can do. There's nothing she can do. So she's going to have to live with the idea that he would still be alive had she, whose dominant energy, she's equal to him, said, look, it's important you work on yourself, period. But that's a conversation most people don't have. Instead, we go along. We listen to people's excuses, rationalizations, justifications, and then we adapt to them. And do you know when people start adapting to everyone's excuse or rationalization, you never have good results, ever. In life, you either have good results or you have excuses for not having them. And we master, even and before we start something, we master our excuse. Because more often than not, we're looking at the exit while we're told to go forward. We're looking for an exit. It's too hard. Don't want to do this. I don't feel comfortable with this kind of change. And that's why we're the sickest nation on the planet per population, the most obese, the most diabetic, most cancer, most um, mental illnesses, we have all these problems. None of these are normal, except they're all absolutely predictable based upon our social conditioning. So, my suggestion is not giving you a whole series of protocols, all do intravenous vitamin C with aquil vitamin A and do glutathione pushes and do a carnivora and do, you know, bitter melon juices. I have all those in my book, and you're welcome to look at the book I wrote on cancer including protocols for advanced end-stage cancer, and the documentary, Three and a Half Hours, I did on that. You can read all that. But until such time that you change your underlying values of life, those are of secondary importance. Does that make sense to you? Yes, it does. So what you need to focus on, in my opinion, Lori, is don't look for the changing of the symptoms, change completely the direction of your life, stop being responsible for anything that does not honor your life or anyone, 
start over with purpose, where you make your life more important than the sublimation that led to your being morbidly obese and and end-stage cancer. Cancer is just the end stage of a of massive inflammatory responses and a destruction of the immune system. Whether it happens at 40, 50, 60, 70, if you make these choices, it's going to be that or a heart attack or a stroke. It's one of those three that's going to happen. And yet we don't have a single class in America that is being taught on a public health issue telling people the journey of health starts with the attitude and the discipline to keep that attitude and supporting people in your life that will support you with that attitude. So you should now surround yourself with people who have positive attitudes who will be there to help you in the disciplines that will be required, but a full energized commitment to healing. Is that reasonable? Does that make sense? Yes. Okay, good. Then I look forward for another conversation. Call me in a month or two and tell me how you're doing on that new road, that new journey to health and healing. Thank you so much. All the best to you, Laurie. I'm Gary Nall. This is Talk Back. We're taking on the issues. I don't know who the people are. don't know what they're asking, but I'm here to address each and every one of your issues. Give us a call at 888-874-4888. That's 888-874-4888. And I welcome your calls. And while you're calling in, now we're going to go over to Elizabeth, who has been taking emails all week. And Elizabeth, what is the next issue? Uh, yes, the next question uh, is from Richard in Portland, Oregon. Basically, he's asking, do you really believe in conspiracies? Yes. Right. Um, that's, a, that's a kind of a strange question, but... Yeah, it was quite a long email, but he was basically, he's just basically asking, do you believe in conspiracies? Okay, yeah. let me just give you examples. Just in the last 24 hours, we have learned from WikiLeaks that there were conspiracies by people high up in the State Department, a man named Kennedy, to work with the FBI to get the FBI to change one of Hillary Clinton's emails from classified to non-classified. Therefore, it could be hidden and overlooked, and it wouldn't be brought up that she was engaged in some kind of secret classified information that she shouldn't have had on a personal server. Now, the Clintons have historically denied they did this. WikiLeaks show that they lie about everything. We have had consistent conspiracies uncovered. Example, have you ever heard of the Gulf of Tonkin? Yes. For those who haven't, the Gulf of Tonkin resolution was what got us into the Vietnam War. It was based upon American ship being attacked by North Vietnamese uh, gunboats, but it never happened. But we believed it did happen. And here's all these people, these globalists, the uh, neoliberal people that profit from war conflict because they're the ones, the hundreds of thousands of corporations that make parts for bombs and missiles and ships and airplanes and rifles and depleted ammunition. All these implements of war are created by individuals and companies, and they employ millions of people. So it's multi-billion dollar year interest that they make, providing that you can justify the war. So if you lie about a conflict, you have a false flag, 
Uh, and we were only fully informed of this when the, through Freedom of Information Act, we were able to get records to show it was all lies. Then, in a very rare interview, in a wonderful documentary by Errol Morris called The Fog of War, where he won an, deservedly so won an Academy Award, Robert McNamara, who was one of these best and brightest, he had been a top-up at the Ford Company, I believe, and he was Secretary of Defense. And he acknowledged that this was a wrong war, it should never have been in it, and yet he was one of the architects of keeping us in it and just keep pumping more troops and more troops and more troops. 58,000 dead Americans, 2.5 million dead Vietnamese, and hundreds of thousands wounded, injured, millions exposed to Agent Orange, Americans, troops, and millions of Vietnamese, tens of thousands of deformities from that Agent Orange, which, which would destroy the foliage so you could see the troops from airplanes. We knew it was a lie. Did anyone apologize for it? No. Would anyone brought to trial judge for it? No. But it's an actual situation, a conspiracy involving a lot of people. Have you ever heard of Operation COINTELPRO? Yes. There's where the FBI conspired to infiltrate every black or nationalist or radical organization and become agent provocateurs. And they actually set Martin Luther King up when they found out he was having an affair, they called upon him to do the right thing and commit suicide. So they were blackmailing him. Fortunately for us, he did not succumb to this, though you could only imagine the pressure a preacher, a spiritual guide, a political force. Now imagine what it would be like if he were running today. All those salacious phone calls, the women he met with, all that would have been exposed. Now, to his core followers, that would have not deterred them in believing him because his higher principles and what he was focusing on were legitimate. What a person does in their private life is their business. But they intended to weaken his support, to diminish him as a national leader by using blackmail. And J. Edgar Hoover was behind it. That's a conspiracy, and it's been exposed. In fact, in the church hearings, uh, Senator Church, who I spoke with, uh, made a very, very specific situation where uh, he showed, through hearing after hearing after hearing, that, uh, uh, that the former director of the CIA came in, and we conspired to kill the Diem brothers in Vietnam. When Ho Chi Minh, who had won a long, hard-fought battle against the French colonialism uh, to free Vietnam from the, the French to unite the country, the United States continued to supply weapons and intelligence and planes to the French until they were finally defeated at Bim Phu. But then we never forgot that. And then Kennedy went in later, Robert and JFK, before they had their transformation, and uh, caused the death of the, uh, of the Diem brothers. But in any case, this all came out in the church hearings of all these conspiracies that more than 1,100 journalists were involved with the CIA. Therefore, many of the stories that we were told were true were not. These were 
stories that had a bias. We were also told about weapons of mass destruction. That was a conspiracy. So that conspiracy is real. Now bring it up to date. We were told that Libya represented a threat because it was murdering innocent civilians in Benghazi. Not true. Documents show that there were no people being killed, citizens, by Gaddafi. He was fighting terrorists that had taken over Benghazi. So they put in a no-fly zone. That's Hillary Clinton. And uh, the real reason that we went into Libya is because Gaddafi wanted all of the oil and other major products that were sold by Libya and all the other African nations to be traded in gold, not dollars. And that represented an enormous threat to the United States. So they had him killed. And no one was held accountable. Now it's a failed state. Are you aware of what Libya was like before its invasion? I had heard from uh, listening to your radio shows, actually, about how it was quite enlightened. They were well, especially uh, not, not just women. enlightened. Let me give you some things. 54 countries in Africa. It was number one in highest... Uh, literacy rate. Uh, the more people were educated in Libya than any other country. Complete freedom for women, women's rights. More women held political office. More women ran companies in Libya than any other country in the Middle East. You could not, uh, you could not abuse or beat a woman in Libya. That was a big offense. They had more democracy in Libya than we could ever have in the United States because every single decision that impacted anyone at any level there would be a committee. This was a democracy at its best where local people would decide the fate of whatever was decided, and that was the rule of law. And all the oil, the light oil, which was a very expensive oil that was coming out of Libya, that would go into the central bank and be distributed, aside from what was necessary for the government, to people's own bank accounts. What other country in the world shares its, its uh, income to improve people's lives? There was free medicine, and if you needed an operation and it couldn't be done in Libya, you could be taken anywhere in the world. Everything would be paid for. Everyone could get a free education. If, uh, if you needed to go to Harvard, you went to Harvard. So your medicine was covered, your education was covered, you got a, you got a, a, you got a nice uh, check when you were married. If you had a child, you got more money. Everyone had a house to live in or an apartment or a farm, and if you had a farm, it was purchased for you. You could own property. Uh, there was no crime. There was no terrorism. There were more than 230 different tribes. That's no easy task, trying to satisfy them. And yet it prospered. The largest human-made environmental project in the world, the great water sharing, this huge water project that would serve over 200 million Africans in drier climates, to take good fresh water from Libya and take it into these, uh, take it down through these man-made channels, all over Africa. They had no debt. They had over 120 tons of gold. So no illiteracy as such. They were considered the jewel of Africa in the Middle East. Remarkable. What now, a shame people didn't but know. the America, the American media will never tell you this story. It's not that they don't have the resources to know this. They're highly literate, 
but they're also the best and brightest frequently from these Ivy League schools who are technocrat appointments, and their bias is, who ultimately will I offend by what I do? Go for a soft target, one that is not a threat to my career. You don't see 60 Minutes or 2020 going after Bill Clinton and the Clinton Foundation. They're not going to do that. CNN's not going to do it. So the bias itself creates a self-selecting censorship, so you're never told the full truth. Now, that's a conspiracy. We found out that uh, the little girl that was in one of the recent uh, town hall meetings with Hillary Clinton, that it was all staged, that the person's husband was a Democrat and uh, part of the DNC. We've also been finding out in the last couple of days that provocateurs at, at Donald Trump, and I say there's no reason to be a provocateur at Donald Trump because Donald Trump only needs to debate himself and he'll lose any election. He is such a functional illiterate. But the point is that they were engaged in really dirty politics. They even went against Bernie Sanders. How do we know that? That's a conspiracy. The Democratic National Committee is not supposed to support one candidate over another, yet they supported Hillary and did everything they could to stop uh, Bernie. That's a conspiracy. The CDC has, has now a group of scientists. There's a group of very honest scientists, in a, 12 of them, who have created a committee called, um, what is it called? It's the Scientists Preserving Integrity, Diligence, and Ethics in Research. And they put a list of complaints in writing to the CDC's chief of staff showing that the CDC is terribly corrupt, supporting big pharma and not the American public. Then we have, that's a conspiracy. They're exposing it. Snowden, Snowden showed us that, by the way, are you, are you aware that Snowden was a, uh, he was conservative. He was a, he was a nationalist, a patriot. He, yeah. he went to fight in uh, uh, Afghanistan. He just physically couldn't do it. He broke his uh, leg in training. But he worked around the world. He worked in, uh, I believe it was uh, Sweden or one of the countries in that area of the world. He worked in Hawaii. He was brilliant. People don't ask, how did the guy get to the place where he was? It was because... He was smarter than everyone else around him. In fact, when he was originally recruited for the um, CIA and the National Security Agency, they were given a test, all these new recruits, and they were given a problem to solve that would take about four hours. He solved it in under 40 minutes. So the instructor thought this is not possible and challenged him on it. And not only was it correct that he solved the problem, he solved it in a mathematical model that the instructor had never thought possible. So he had that kind of highly analytical mind, literally a genius mind. So everywhere he went, he was able to solve problems no one else could solve. You never hear that about Snowden, do you? That he was this genius yeah, that was yeah. being used. He was used for years by the U.S. government to spy on other countries, to decipher their information. And what he saw was that much of what was being done was illegal. And finally, it was in Hawaii where he simply came to a point 
working in a super secret base there underground that we were illegally spying on everyone, not just terrorists or suspected terrorists, that we weren't just capturing people's phone numbers or who they called and the date they called them. We were capturing their actual word for word, every single phone call, every single word we have now, the United States government has. They were reading every single email. They were... Uh, they were going into every single government, including all of our allies, including Angela Merkel in Germany, the chancellor, and they were downloading all of her messages on her cell phone. Every time she spoke, every time any world leader spoke on their own personal cell phones, it was all recorded and analyzed. They were then spying on corporations in other countries for American companies. They were engaging in espionage. He was aware of all this. As a result, he decided this was wrong. And he also saw that no one was going to change it. Everyone was complicit going up the chain of command. Everyone's career, promotion, standard of living, allegiance, ideology, politic was based upon shut up, do what you're told. And that's why he decided that was his motivation. So when he leaked this information, first the information was never shown ever. In fact, it was so stated that it did not jeopardize anything that America had done. He showed what we were doing illegally. Now, here's the logic of this. He exposed illegal activities by government agents. The government then said it was illegal to expose illegal activities. So then the New York Times and the other organizations that are absolutely complicit in these conspiracies and biases, they sided with the government. As a result, Snowden was then demonized. Hillary Clinton demonized him. Bernie Sanders demonized him. Only Jill Stein said he was a hero. He is a hero. And now he's living this life as an exile. He'll never be able to return to America. So when we're told, work within the system, and you'll have your day in court, every single whistleblower that's come forward has been prosecuted, every single one, by this president. But this president can do no wrong. Bill Clinton could do no wrong because people are attracted to their charisma, to their personality. And as long as you're charismatic and you have a personality, everything else is forgiven. And that is unfortunate. That is not cool at all. So we talk in a debate after debate. That person looked presidential. Presidential? They look presidential. What about the record? What about the 500,000 children that died in Iraq from sanctions by Hillary and Bill Clinton? But he's such a charming guy. What about the $12 billion the Clinton and Clinton Foundation took under the auspices and direct authority of the President of the United States over a sovereign nation that they had no authority to do so to allow them to effectively run Haiti as if it was their own private charity, and no money went back to Haiti. But he seems so genuine. What about all the money for all those speeches and all the pay-to-play? Well, life isn't perfect. I mean, and this is how we view these people. So when someone comes along and tells us the truth about our heroes or the people we like, it offends us. So we don't want the truth about anything. Remember Jack Nicholson and uh, 
few good men in that scene in the courtroom with Tom Cruise. Yeah. And he says, you can't handle the truth. Well, the reality is some of us can. I estimate about 5% of the American population can handle the truth just fine. And we're not going to take your word for what is the truth. We're going to put it through a litmus test. We're going to determine what is true ourselves. And so when you look at all these conspiracies, and, and by the way, it's not just these I've mentioned, the fact that we got into Iraq, weapons of mass destruction. They knew going in. Cheney knew. Scooter Libby knew. Uh, all these people, uh, Condoleezza Rice, all knew. Donald Rumsfeld knew that these were lies because all that information was fixed information that was coming out of, uh, of Dick Cheney's office. Dick Cheney had rogue people in his office, and so he would then give Judith Miller, the New York Times, a false story through one of his leads, and then when it came out in the New York Times, Dick Cheney would see, even the New York Times says that there's weapons of mass destruction. So that's how smart they were. No one was ever held accountable even the FBI's latest memo that was released through WikiLeaks mentions the shadow government, the State Department. Yeah. Uh, Bill Clinton once reportedly told senior White House reporter Sarah McClendon, Sarah, there's a government inside the government, and I don't control it. Yeah. So, and that was on page 56 of the FBI files on the Clinton investigation. So we have a deep state, and the deep state has existed. Even Thomas Jefferson wrote a letter to John Taylor in 1816 that said, I sincerely believe with you that banking establishments are more dangerous than standing armies. But he wasn't the only president. President John Calhoun, the seventh president in 1825, said, A power has risen up in the government greater than the people themselves, consisting of many and various and powerful interests, combined into one mass and held together by the cohesive power of the vast surplus in the banks. And you had the former mayor of New York City, John Hyland, back in 1918, who said the real menace of our republic is the invisible government, which like a giant octopus sprawls its slimy legs over our cities and states and nations. You had Teddy Roosevelt, President of the United States, who said behind the ostensible government, sits enthroned, an invisible government, owing no allegiance and acknowledging no responsibility to the people. To destroy this invisible government, to befoul the unholy alliance between corrupt business and corrupt politics is the first task of the statesmanship of the day. And then you had Woodrow Wilson, not my favorite president, who said that since he entered politics... He had chiefly had men's views confided to him privately. Some of the biggest men in the United States in the field of commerce, manufacturing, are afraid of somebody, are afraid of something. They know that there is a power somewhere so organized, so subtle, so watchful, so interlocked, so complete, so pervasive, that they had better not speak above their breath when they speak in condemnation of it. Now compare that, what he said back in 1917, to what we have today with this state, that every single word you utter, every single picture you take, every single transmission, every single electronic conversation, everything you say in front of your television set while you're at home is being recorded, both video and audio. If you doubt me, right now, go over to your computer, go over to your television set if it's a new flat screen, and 
run your finger gently across the top of the uh, video or the television and you'll f touch a little tiny dip. That's the camera. Are you aware that every single person's new television or computer is watching and listening to what they say? Are you aware that your cell phone can take a picture of you and turn itself on without you turning it on? And hence, Are you aware that when you're in a car, every single conversation you have is being recorded if you have one of those? That's the National Intelligence Agency. Why do they want this information? But they do. We had a senator named William Jenner back in 1954 who said that today the path to total dictatorship in the United States can be laid by strictly legal means. We have a well-organized political action group in this country determined to destroy our Constitution and establish a one-party state. Well, today, you don't have Democrats and Republicans. You have oligarchs behind them. That's your single party. Even Dwight Eisenhower, in his farewell address on January 17, 1960, said, This conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development, yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. Well, that's the military-industrial complex today. Those are the people like Halliburton are able to charge $100 to wash one single soldier's duffel bag, and then they got the law passed, so the Pentagon says that no one can wash their own laundry in a war zone. You must give it to Halliburton, even though it would only cost you a dollar to do it yourself, we're giving them $100 to do it for us. And hence the massive exploitation of money, five to six trillion dollars they've made since 9-11. And then you had President John F. Kennedy on April 27, 1961, who said that for we who oppose around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covert means for expanding its sphere of influence, on infiltration instead of invasion, on subversion instead of elections, on intimidation instead of free choice, on guerrillas by night instead of armies by day. It is a system which has constricted vast human and material resources into the building of a tightly knit, highly efficient machine. There's your military-industrial complex. And then you had, uh, you had people uh, like... Uh, well, Sinclair Lewis, who in 1935 wrote a satirical novel dealing with fascism, It Can't Happen Here. It was very prophetic because the main character, Michael Meyer, says that we are so afraid of the world, fascism, just a word, just a word, and might not be so bad with all the lazy bums. We got panhandling relief nowadays and living on my income, tax and yours, not so worse to have a real strong man like Hitler or Mussolini, like Napoleon or Bismarck, in the good old days, and have him really run the country and make it efficient and prosperous again. Well, think ahead. When we had societies get so bad that they praised and sought after people like Hitler and Mussolini to make the trains run on time and deal with, uh, deal with the loss of currency value, and build war machines and commit genocide, think of the ideologues today that support the military-industrial complex. Fifty-six cents out of every dollar goes to them, but not to schools, not to the poor, not to the homeless, not to rebuild in, in inner cities, 
and give people a chance at life. That's conspiracy. That's not done by accident. That is intentional. And uh, look at Wall Street. Frank Michael Froman, a former Citibank executive who single-handedly built the entire cabinet of what was supposed to be the main, main Street uh, hope and change President Obama, Remember, Citibank got the largest bailout in American history, $2.2 trillion of taxpayer money. And then he selected every single member, the important members of Barack Obama's cabinet. That came out in WikiLeaks. That's a conspiracy. Princeton University said America is no longer a democracy. It is an oligarchy. Jimmy Carter said that the U.S. is no longer a democracy. It's an oligarchy. And then it was University of Michigan's Michael Glennon who said, vote all you want, the secret government won't change. And then you've got WikiLeaks exposing George Soros controlling Clinton. So we have hidden governments. We have, we have powerful people behind the scene, and we never expose them. And what they want, they get. Their rules, we're supposed to abide by. And that's not the way it should be. So when you, someone asks about me believing in conspiracies, wow, and uh, tell me how the world works today, it is involved in people who believe they have a right to dictate the terms of our lives, both domestic and foreign policy. Well, how'd that work out for everyone? Just take a look around. We're out of time. I want to thank you all for listening. Look forward to sharing more on the next program. Have a nice day. There's far too many of you dying. You know we've got to find a way to bring some.